So with our announcements out of the way, let's go ahead and move along into our teaching this morning. I'm excited that today we're starting back in our long series that we've been uh, kind of hopping in and out of, but slowly working our way through, uh, called Shepherd, Warrior, Warrior, King, The Life of David. And so we are jumping back into that series this morning and starting in 2 Samuel. Before Advent, we had wrapped up in the story of David in 1 Samuel, and now we are going to be starting today in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 1. We're going to be starting right there in the beginning of 2 Samuel today. So once again, we'll be in 2 Samuel in chapter 1, if you'll be following along in your own Bible. If you're having trouble finding it, or if you didn't bring your own Bible, that's okay, because we'll have the text on the screens next to me so that you'll be able to follow along up there. I'll give you just a moment, and then I'm going to read this passage And we will uh, look at it to consider what we have to learn. Okay, well, if we're all all about ready, I'm going to go ahead and read. We're going to be looking at just the first half of this chapter this morning. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 1 through 17. I'm sorry, 1 through 16. Starting in verse 1, it says, After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, Where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, How do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happen to be on Mount Geboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him, How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, Your blood is on your own head, because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. Have you ever watched a, uh, a show or, or something of the like where, where it's a sequel? It's, a, it's the part two show, and it begins with saying something like, you know, previously on, you know, previously on Law and Order, SUV, SVU, not SUV. 
and it gives you a quick recap of what had happened uh, before the sequel so that you get to see, and you're remembered of some of the key points in the storyline so that you'll be caught up or you'll be uh, reminded of those important key points so that you'll be able to follow along and know what's happening in the sequel that you're about to read. Well, similarly, as we go into the sequel book of, of, of the books of First and Second Samuel, it's important for us, I think, to maybe step back just for a second and have a uh, a moment of previously in the book of Samuel, okay? And re- be rem- reminded of some of the key points that had happened before this story and some of the key moments that had happened in David's life. If you've been with us for a while and, you've, uh, and you were with us in this series earlier, you might remember these things. But earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, whenever David was going through this time of struggling with uh, Saul and running from him in the wilderness as Saul was trying to take David's life, there was a couple of key points. And, and specifically, it was in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and then again later in 26, whenever David had the opportunity to go and take Saul's life for himself. Now remember, David was fleeing, though he was already a war hero and, and, a, and, uh, and famous in Israel, the kingdom had already been promised to him, he was fleeing as, as a refugee running throughout the wilderness, away from Saul was trying to kill him, but he had a couple of moments where Saul's life was in his hands. He had the opportunity to go and, and strike down Saul and then have all of his troubles be over with in a moment, Right? For the kingdom that had been promised to him, that he was the rightful uh, heir to, his inheritance to be given to him, for him to receive in that moment. He had these different opportunities, and in those times, he learned some lessons. He learned some lessons about what God desired of him and how God works and what it means to live in God's kingdom, and specifically for David to be the leader in God's kingdom. And it's because he learned those lessons in 1 Samuel uh, 24 and in 26, in these different episodes, that he acts in such a way here in 2 Samuel 1. So it's important that we remember that, that, that David had learned these lessons whenever he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, and so it informs us on why he acted, because he had learned some lessons that informs the way that he acts here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's important for us to remember and know that even though this story is literally ancient history, there are still some important, relevant lessons for us to learn, just like David had learned, about the kingdom of God how it operates, and how we should live in it. So today we're going to be looking at, at, at two couplets. Right, two couplets. The first couplet that we're going to look at is we're going to learn a, a, about the kingdom of God and how it operates with truth and power. How truth and power operate in the kingdom of God. And then the second couplet that we're going to look at is about love and grief. So based off this story, some kingdom principles we can learn. The first two about truth and power, and the second two about love and grief. So 2 Samuel begins with David having just returned from striking down Amalekites. You might remember this if you were, like I said, if you've maybe read this recently or if you were with us uh, several months ago whenever we looked at this. But while David and his men had been, uh, had been away from Ziklag, which was sort of their temporary uh, uh, headquarters, Whenever they had been away, a tribe of Amalekites had come in, plundered the city, taken the uh, women and children, taken all of their livestock and possessions, and uh, brought them away with them, taken them in plunder. 
So whenever David and his men get home, they see that their, their city had been plundered, their families taken away. They traveled to discover where they were. Uh, they had a great victory in battle. They struck down the Amalekites, defeated them in battle, and uh, rescued and returned absolutely everything that had been taken. Not one of their wives, children, livestock, or any other possessions had been lost. They recovered everything. And so it, it's interesting. There's this little irony here in how first, uh, I'm sorry, Second Samuel starts, right? By saying, David had just returned from striking down Amalekites. And then look at what's about to happen here in this passage. He's about to strike down another one. Because what happens is, after a couple of days of them being uh, back in Ziklag, there is someone who comes running into David's camp. The text tells us that it's a young man, and it says a couple of times that this young man is an Amalekite. He was the son of, uh, of an Amalekite who had taken up residence in Israel. So, you know, it, it's, it's a good reminder for us sometimes to understand that in ancient history, and even in ancient Israel, it's not as though everyone who lived in Israel was an Israelite or, or even a, a follower of God. But they had many different people groups living in, in Israel and in the, the major cities. They were metropolitan to a certain uh, extent. Um, or I'm sorry, they were cosmopolitan to a certain extent. They had people uh, from all around that part of the world living there, some of whom became God followers, right? And some of whom never became a God follower, but they were still living there because that's, that's where they had set up their business, their life, and so on. And so that's who this Amalekite was. He was the son of a man, an Amalekite, who had taken up residence in Israel, but never, ne- though he never started to obey God. It doesn't seem from uh, we don't get any indication from this text. They just lived in Israel, though themselves were not Israelites. He comes running into David's camp uh, from the site of the battle, Mount Geboa, where uh, this war, this battle between the Israelites and Philistines had broken out, Saul and his sons uh, being killed at it. He comes all the way to Ziklag, which would have been about an 80-mile journey, so it would have taken him a few days. So David's battle, returning all their stuff, and the one happening on Geboa probably happened around the same time, they get back to their city, and then a couple of days later, uh, th- this young man has now made it to their camp. He gets there. It says his, his clothes are torn. There's dust all over him. So, you know, they can tell that he, he came from somewhere where there was some action. <laughs> this guy showed up, and you, just by looking at him, they could tell this is a guy with a story. So he comes, and he delivers to them this news that, that, they had, that Israel had lost to the Philistines, that Saul had died, and his sons had died as well. Whenever David asks him for the specifics, well, how do you know that they had died? He answers David, well, long story short, I finished Saul off. Saul the king had been mortally wounded. I came across him. He says, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. You know, it's kind of interesting how he says that. I just happened to be there, and the king was mortally wounded, and so I finished him off. I finished him off. I took his armband, and I took his crown, and here they are. You see, so this young man, he, he, he hustled and he traveled all this way to David, who he knew would be the next king to bring him his plunder and his story of what had happened. But it doesn't match up with the story that we read at the end of 1 Samuel, does it? If you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, this is not what we read. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is wounded. He sees that the battle is lost, that he is eventually going to be taken or struck down by the Philistines. He doesn't want that to happen, and so it says that Saul fell on his own sword and died. But here's this Amalekite who said, no, I just found him, and and then I finished him off. What do we do with this? 
Is this one of those notorious moments where the Bible has contradicted itself? No, it's not. No, it's not. Here's how we make sense of this. What it means uh, is it's pretty obvious. It's a simple answer. This Amalekite had come with his plunder and with his story that may or may not be true. Hint, it's not true. He's making it up, right? He, he comes with this story because he's looking to get something from David. He saw an opportunity. Notice even the narrator gives us some subtle clues by, by it always refers to his report, but it doesn't say that this would actually happen because the narrator already told us what actually happened at the end of 1 Samuel. And here he comes with this plunder. And he says, you know, I just happened to find myself next to the king in the middle of the battle. It's pretty obvious if we, if we read into the text here that this Amalekite had made this story up. Because we already read the real story, the true story. What this Amalekite had most likely done, he, was, he maybe had been involved in the battle to one degree or another, or he had come across the site of the battle whenever it was over and was looking around for things that he could take. He was looking around for things that he plundered, that he could plunder from the dead, the fallen in battle, and oh, he comes across the king himself. And this young guy sees an opportunity, right? He sees an opportunity to take the crown, the armband, like I said before, some signs, and to concoct a story so he might go to the next administration, go to the next leader, and possibly get himself a reward or a nice government position. That's what's happening here. And so it's, it's, it's tragic that this young man's lie would end up to, uh, leading to him losing his life because David doesn't know the real story yet, right? He, do, he doesn't know. All he knows is what this young man has told him. But this is what is happening here. He comes to him lying and so on. But if we consider what this means in terms of kingdom principles, and we, and we look at what the young man was doing here and concocting this story and what he was most likely trying to get out of his plunder and his, his story that he had made up, is we can see how the Amalekite story, his lie, assumes something about the kingdom of God, and it assumes something about power. Whenever the, the, he came up with this idea, he took the plunder and his story to David, we can see that there was an assumption at work behind all of his actions about how he thought that David would react. You see, he expected, obviously, for David to be pleased that he had gone and finished off Saul, taken a plunder, and had gone and brought them before David, who was supposed to be the next king. He obviously assumed that David was going to be excited about this, that he was going to be pleased by it and say, oh, you were the one? You were the one to finally finish him off, to, to finish off my enemy, and to bring literally the, the, the symbols of the kingdom into my hands? Because the Amalekite assumed that it is okay to just use power in order to accomplish so-called godly means or godly ends. He assumed that it was okay that, you see, even though it was God's plan for the kingdom to be transferred to David, this Amalekite assumed that it was okay to sort of take matters into your own hands to give God's plans a little push. That's obviously what was happening in his mind. This is the assumption that he's operating on whenever he goes to David, very excited to bring him his plunder and his signs of Saul having fallen. But remember David's lessons. You see, this is why it's important that we, that we, that we took that previously in 1 Samuel, okay? Because remember David, what David had learned. Whenever David had the opportunity to do what this Amalekite claimed he did, okay? 
Remember what David had learned whenever Saul's life was literally in his hands. David learned that it was not right to use worldly means to try to achieve godly ends. David understood that it was not right to just uh, usurp power and to take matters into his own hands to supposedly you know, push forward God's promises a little bit, to claim God's promises for himself. He learned in those circumstances that that was wrong. That trying to achieve uh, certain even righteous or godly accomplishments through less than godly or worldly means was a sin. Because David had learned those lessons back in 1 Samuel 24 and in 26. That is what informed him in this situation and why he understood that that the story that this young guy told him was a serious offense, a sin against God and worthy of death. Because is the kingdom of God something that operates by God's power? Or does it depend upon the power and wisdom of man? Here's the first point that we learn. The kingdom of God operates by the power of God. The kingdom of God operates by the power of God. It operates by the power of God. It operates by the wisdom of God. It operates according to his plan. And it operates according to his timing. Now sometimes that's frustrating for us. Right? Even if you're not David and, and your situation might, isn't quite as dramatic as waiting to receive a literal kingdom and leadership over a nation. I don't think any of our lives are quite that dramatic, but we as well, are, are, all of us are, are often find ourselves waiting in one moment or, or in another situation for God to come through on something that he has promised, on something or, or something that we have been praying for or expecting him for. We're, we're in a time of trouble or in a time of suffering, and so we cry out to him for his help, and we are waiting to see him come through. There's times whenever you go through situations like this in your life, and there's opportunities before you to maybe take a shortcut. You're in a pinch, and you know that the right thing to do would be to rely on God in this pinch, or you know that you can maybe pull some strings. You know that you can maybe manipulate the situation with some, with some half-truths or some white lies or maybe by doing certain things, and then you can get yourself out of that situation, or you can get that door to open that you're waiting to open. Now, if, it were a, if that door opened, then it would be a good thing. It would be a blessing. But would your manipulation, would your half-truths or white lies or in any of these other less-than-righteous means make it okay to open that good door? With stories like this in 1 Samuel 24, 26, and what we see here, what these teach us is that that is a no, that it is wrong, that using worldly means in order to achieve so-called godly ends is wrong. It doesn't just matter what we are trying to accomplish, but it also matters how we try to accomplish that which God has set before us, or he has promised us. So the kingdom of God operates by the power of God. Let me give you two kind of implications or, or statements that flesh this out a little bit more about what it means for the kingdom of God to operate by the power of God. The first one is this. We ought to understand that breaking God's law in order to achieve God's purposes is never appropriate. I've already touched on that a good bit, but it is never appropriate in order to, uh, to break God's law to try to achieve his purposes. You see, because the, uh, the Amalekite, whenever he came to David, what was his sin? Well, 
since we have more information than David did, we know that his sin was ultimately a lie, right? But, but according to all the information that David had at the time, what was his sin, the reason why he deserves the death penalty? His sin wasn't just that he killed somebody. There's a lot of killing in battle. It, it's brutal. His sin was that he had struck down the Lord's anointed. Why was it wrong for David to, to strike down Saul, though Saul had been sinning against him and sinning against him and lying to him and, and coming after him for his life. Why was it wrong for David to take him? Because David certainly took many of his other enemies' lives. Why? Because Saul was different. Saul wasn't just one of his enemies. He was the Lord's anointed. David understood that it would have been a grave sin against God in order to take the life of his anointed, and that it was only in God's hands to take the life of one that he had anointed, which is why he ultimately understood, okay, I cannot touch this guy. The Amalekite's sin, which he was struck down for, was taking the life of the anointed, or as he, uh, as he claimed. But David understood that, that Saul, though he deserved such a fate, it would be wrong to come by his hand, but should come by God's. Likewise, what that means in our own life is that it would be wrong in, to abuse people or to manipulate people or manipulate situations in order to achieve a, uh, a supposedly good behavior, right? It would be wrong for us to lie to people, to manipulate them, or to threaten and abuse them so that we can achieve the right behavior out of them. Because we can fool ourselves into doing things like that all the time. And we see that being, being done all the time in our life, both inside the church and even outside the church. It being assumed that we can uh, compel people through force in order to doing the right thing. That's not the right thing. That's the wrong thing. Think of it this way. Parents, you can use threats. You can use your power. right? You can use, uh, you can use your, your greater wisdom or whatever else else it might be, into forcing the right behavior out of your child. But is that the right thing to do? No, I'm not talking about godly discipline of our children. There's a time where there is godly discipline and consequences, but I'm talking about the use of power, of fear, and of manipulation, and of control over our children. Even if you think what you are doing is in order to get the right behavior out of them so they make the right decisions. If you do so in a way that is not godly, then that is not righteous parenthood. You see, that's just one example, but we can see it in many other circumstances. Uh, uh, pastors abusing their office in order to get uh, uh, greater service out of their church members. Is greater service to our church a good thing? Yes, but not at the expense of abusing and using people, Right? It would be wrong for us to steal in order to uh, achieve good charity, right? Breaking God's law by stealing, uh, and even if it is to do some of the best of philanthropy, would be wrong. We understand that. It would be a wrong use of power. It'd be like the sheriff of Nottingham who went around abusing his people uh, by, by stealing their money, but I'm sure he had a great excuse because of all the social programs he wanted to fund by it. But taking their money by force would be wrong. It would be theft. You see, and we can, we can flesh this out in so many different examples, but breaking God's law, even if it's to achieve supposedly good ends, is a wrong use of power, and it is not the way that the kingdom of God operates. Here's a second implication of this. The use of power in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, it is inevitable. 
In the kingdom of God, God operates a lot of power. Right? In, the, in the kingdom of God, in its manifestation in the world today, he raises up leaders, and those leaders operate with a certain amount of power and influence. Uh, the, the use of power in and of, itself, in, in and of itself is not wrong. It is going to be inevitable. But what is important is how that power is used. You see, David was worthy to sit on the throne in God's kingdom because he had come to learn these lessons about the appropriate use of power. Because he had gone through those lessons and those times where he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, he had the temptation, it was there, but instead he did the right thing and he learned that lesson. You see, David learned the lesson of this, that if he's going to be a leader worthy of receiving and wielding the influence, the authority that God is going to give him, then he must be a leader who operates under the authority of God. And only whenever he would be a leader who would operate in submission to God's authority would he be able to appropriately use the power that God would delegate to him in a way that would honor the Lord. What this means for us is that we need to become, endeavor to become people who live in submission to the authority of God. Men and women live to become someone who, who operates under submission to the authority of God in obedience to his law, in obedience to his rules and his guidance so that you might become someone who can be trusted with power. Like I said, power is inevitable. In the hands of someone who will not submit to the Lord, it is terrible. It's frightening. But in the hands of someone who has proven themselves worthy because they will submit to God, they will only wield it in the way that the Lord has authorized them to and delegated them to. Well, then in submission to that kind of a person, it can be a blessing and a joy. So what this means for us, even as everyday people, in the, in the situations that God has placed you and with the, whatever degree of power, influence, authority that God has placed you in your circles of influence, you must endeavor to learn how to live with that power, with that authority and influence in those circles in a way that is done in ultimate submission to God so that you do not become a petty tyrant in whatever circles those are, whether that be in the home, in the workplace, or wherever else, but that instead you become a shepherd king like David. Husbands, fathers, if you become the kind of man who wields the authority that God has given you in that household so that your authority is a blessing to the family because you are in submission to God, well then wives, children, families, isn't that kind of a father and husband a joy to live with, a blessing to the household. Likewise, in, in, in your leadership positions and your jobs, how, how great would it be to follow a boss who lives in submission to the authority of God and who treats you according to the way that God has commanded him or her to treat you? That would be a pleasure. How great and what a joy and privilege would it be for us to have civic leaders who only use the authority that they have as civic leaders in the way that God has ordered to them, ordered them because they live their lives in ultimate submission and allegiance to the authority of God. These would be the kind of leaders that we could maybe actually trust a little bit, the kind of leaders that it would be a joy to follow, the kind of leaders that we could depend upon God to protect us from their own attempts at abuse of power. So the use of power in and of itself is not wrong, but what's important is how it is used and that the person who has it, whether you're a parent, whether you are 
a, a workplace leader, a teacher, whatever else, what's important is that you live your life and you live out that office in submission to the authority of God so that your leadership, your authority, might be a joy for those to follow who are following you. What this means for our life, if I could try to tie together what this section on truth and power is this, it means that you must commit to the truth to live well in God's kingdom. The Amalekite tried to uh, boost his own status, to achieve uh, a reward for himself, not with the use of truth and not in the truth, but instead with a lie. And so there's some irony that God's judgment on the Amalekite is exactly what he claimed to have done. He claimed to strike down Saul. It was false. God exposed that falsehood and struck him down instead. We serve a God who, uh, who, who, who sees exposes and judges falsehoods, my friends. We serve a God who loves the truth. It tells us in Psalm 51.6, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. God, what does he desire from you? Integrity in your soul. In Psalm 90, verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God exposes those things that are hidden. Jesus himself tells us this in Luke 12, 2 and 3. He said, There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Friends, what does this all mean? Like I said before, we must commit to living out our lives in submission to the authority of God and in his truth. In whatever areas of our life that we have not been, living out submission to God, and instead of been living out rebellion, living under our own authority, living according to our own wisdom, or have been concealing falsehoods and lies. We serve a God who, even if you have been duping the people around you, you have not escaped his gaze. He sees those hidden parts of your life. He, maybe he has been holding back certain blessings and opportunities from you because you have been concealing and hiding those things. And so if you were given that opportunity you would abuse it. You have, not been, uh, you have not shown yourself worthy yet of that, of that opportunity, of that door opening, because you've been hiding these things. We serve a God, like I said before, who he sees them. Commit to living in the truth. Open up your life to the Father. Open up every crevice of your heart and dark corner of your soul that you have been hiding from him and from others. Open them up to him and let his light shine down upon them to reveal those falsehoods. Because, friends, you have the opportunity to let God reveal your falsehoods, not at the tip of a spear, but instead in the light of his grace. Whenever he he shines down upon your falsehoods now, you have the opportunity for them being exposed in mercy rather than in judgment. So open your heart up to him. Confess your sins. Share them with your brothers and sisters so that you might receive encouragement, so that they might express God's love and grace to you. So it's helpful to hear from other people too. So they they might help to express it so you can experience it. We serve a God who loves the truth, and so we ought to live in the truth. Let's look at what we have to learn about love and grief in the kingdom of God from this story. It's interesting how in the, right in the middle of the narrative, the narrator stops in verses 12 and 13. The narrator punctuates what's happening here to tell us about the grief of Saul and his men, 
how they how they cried, how they wept, how how David tore his clothes at this at the news of Saul's death and at, and at Jonathan's death, and then it goes back to telling us about what had happened with this Amalekite. You know, it's sort of similar to this. It's like if you've ever heard a story. From, you know, there's some people who tell stories not in the order of how things happen, but in the order of emotions. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, like, like a child. A child comes to you and says, I got to see a giraffe at the zoo today. And that was at the end of the day, and they're like, and, and, I, and I got to have a, a hot dog at lunch. Now, even though the hot dog had come before seeing the giraffe, in the child's mind, the emotion of seeing the giraffe was so much more exciting. They tell you that first, right? And then, and then they tell you what happened. I think something similar is happening here in, in 2 Samuel 1. I don't think that they paused in dealing with this Amalekite to have all this grief. Instead, I think the, the, the narrator is telling us, that, uh, he's ordering the story, not necessarily in, in chronological sequence, but in sequence of emphasis and emotion. He punctuates the story right there, in, in, right after them hearing the news of the, the fallen uh, king and his son in Israel, uh, to highlight the grief that David and his men felt. And then it tells us the rest of the story. Why? Why emphasize their reaction in such a way? To pause the story to make sure we catch it, how they reacted. Why emphasize that? Well, I think we should ask this question. In light of all that they have experienced at the hands of Saul, in light that all that David had experienced, he had experienced a lot of loss a lot of hardship. In, in, in light of all that his men, his soldiers had experienced at the hands of this tyrant, in light of all these things, don't you assume that in response to hearing that news that he had finally died, they would express some relief, maybe even a little bit of joy? <laughs> but instead, they're grieved to their core. They tear their clothes they weep and they fast, it says, for, for hours on end after hearing. It's not necessarily the reaction that you would assume if you take all that they've experienced into light. It's maybe not necessarily the reaction that a lot of us would have had if we were in David's shoes, gone through all he had gone through and then heard this news. Whenever I put myself in his shoes, like I said, I think I would have felt relieved. I would have been a little bit happy, but they grieve. Why? Because here's what we learn. In spite of the divisiveness of Saul's actions and what, he had, and, and what he had done, and in spite of his sin against them, and in spite of even Saul's apostasy, we see that his life had, had been on a downward decline, and then you know, he ended with just full apostasy at the end. In spite of all these things, we learn that David and his men still loved their brethren, and that's why they grieved them. In spite of it all, they still loved their brethren. And so here's what we learn, our second point for today. The kingdom of God is filled with brothers and sisters who love one another unconditionally. The kingdom of God is filled with brothers and sisters who love one another unconditionally. In 1 John 3.14, the apostle wrote, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. John sees this attribute of Christians loving one another as so important, as so central, that it is something that you can stake your assurance of salvation on. Whenever you wonder to yourself, because you've been struggling or you're filled with doubt, you know, have I, have I, am I really even saved? 
Do I really even know God? John tells us this. Here's one way that you can know. If you love the brothers and sisters, if you truly love his church, that's one way you can know that he has saved you, that you are his, that you have passed, as he says, from death to life. That is how important it is. And we see that being lived out in David and his men. Despite all that they had experienced, they still, what their grief shows is that they loved Saul still. They loved even Saul's officers and his army men, his soldiers who had gone, who had obeyed him and trying to take their lives. They still loved them in spite of it all. Here's what this means for us. It means that we ought to have grief for our brethren as well, which is a sign of our love for them. We ought, we ought to have grief for the times that we see defeats of Christ's church. And what I'm, what I'm talking about here is not necessarily uh, martyrdom or where we see persecution. When we see Christians being persecuted and where we see Christian martyrdom, we know because, um, uh, because to die and receive Christ is actually victory. We know that for those who, who have endured in such a way that though the world thinks they have won, that it is actually a victory for, for his church, that it is a victory for them who have, who have lived out such a, a testimony and now are experiencing the fullness of God in heaven. So the kind of grief, we can mourn their losses, but the kind of grief that I'm talking about here is the grief that we see for fallenness in terms of, of failures of the faith that we see in the church. When we see divisiveness among the brothers and sisters in the church. When we see failures of faith. When we see apostasy among the church. When we see flirtations with the world. When we see uh, certain tribes, segments, or, or leaders in the church in order to achieve um, approval from the world will we'll flirt with different um, uh, values of the world and try to appropriate some of those values and maybe baptize them in Christianity a little bit or, 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 or to do, take any other measures to gain the approval of this moral relativist age. Whenever we see examples like this, it ought to grieve us. It shouldn't lead us to this, this kind of haughtiness that we can have when we see uh, others in Jesus' church who are not uh, following his word as closely as we are. Because we see that all the time, and I think that it's especially uh, amplified by social media. I, I see all the time on social media uh, th this attitude from, from brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be more on the conservative side or liberal side or more on one side of this issue or the other, I see this sneering of us against them. This sneering and this, and this mocking and this almost joy whenever someone, uh, you know, sort of steps on the rake of their own decisions. You know, that happens. You, you walk in falsehood and you step on a rake and you get it in the face every now and then. And, and I see uh, Christian brothers and sisters sort of celebrate those things instead of mourning over them. Whenever uh, uh, someone maybe shows their true colors finally. And, and, and sniping and attacking one another and, and, and joining together in our tribes so that we can, so we can sneer together. You know, I see this in the church all the time, and, and I don't think that it reflects the kind of love that we ought to have for our brothers and sisters. Because if we loved them, that doesn't mean that we would overlook their failures of faith. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't even confront some issues that we think is, is them uh, steering off the rails or away from the path of obedience to Christ. 
It doesn't mean those things, but what it does mean is that even in confrontation or even where we witness their failures, that it would grieve us. It's not an opportunity to sneer. It's not an opportunity to be haughty. It's not an opportunity for us to say, oh, thank goodness how right we are. We start to sound like the Pharisee who was in the temple in Jesus's parable. The Pharisee was in the temple uh, praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Boy, can we do that all the time. Whether it's, it, it, it's fights within our own denomination and we say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the, that church that's on the other side of that issue. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this person who's following that political leader. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them, but that I've got it all together. We can have such that same attitude. Instead of a grief, instead of a warmth, compassion, and love that drives us to grieve for them and to pray for them, that drives us to, in love and humility, confront error and make uh, appealing invitations to change. That points out, hey, maybe it is wrong to slander our brothers and sisters in such a way just because they disagree with you. And not to just fall into the same name calling yourself. Like I said, we can see this all over the place, sadly. We can see it on both sides of every issue that there is out there. But let us resolve to instead be like the man after God's own heart. Let us resolve to be people after God's own heart. Who whenever we see our brethren fallen... In, in the battle of this world, in, 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 in the battle for the kingdom of God. Let's resolve to love them unconditionally and grieve for them when we see them fall. How do we know, though, that grief and love is the appropriate response to brethren who have fallen or are in error or have stepped on the rake of their own decisions or whatever else? How do we know that that's the right response and that Maybe a little bit of gleefulness, maybe a little bit of feeling good of ourselves or telling them that they got what they deserved isn't the right response because in the moment, doesn't that feel really good? Here's how we know, though. Here's how we know that grief and love is instead the right response because we follow a Savior who, even as he was being crucified, who even after he had been beaten and mocked and whipped, who even as he was hanging upon his cross, not just in witness of our sin, but for our sin, he forgave us. You see, we just witness the sins of the world out there, and it's so hard for us to not hold on to that sense of superiority that we want to hold on to so bad and, and hold it over their heads a little bit. We're just witnessing error. Jesus was dying for it. Jesus was dying for it. He was bleeding for our sin. He was being mocked. He was being crucified. He was suffering. He was receiving the judgment of God upon himself for our sin. And response to it, what did he bleed out? Not superiority, not, um, not, not haughtiness, not uh, you ungrateful people, look at what I'm doing for you. But he bled out love. He bled out forgiveness as he cried out to the Lord to forgive even those who were nailing him, whipping him, and mocking him. And he cries out the same thing to you and I whenever we are in error, whenever we have failures of faith, whenever we begin to flirt with the world in order to try to achieve the approval of this age. Even still, he is our high priest before the Father, pleading our case. Still to this day, bleeding out nothing but love compassion and grief for us 
That's how we know that it is the right response because we follow such a Savior. We follow a Savior who, as I said before, He is the God who sees all. We follow a Savior who, though He saw to the depth of our being, though He has seen to the darkest corners of our souls that we hide, though He has seen those thoughts that we would, that we would rather die than let the people around us know that we have thought, and those desires that we have harbored. He has seen them all, and he loves you the same. He loves you still. He, he foreknew them all. There is not one sin in your life that you have committed up until this point, or even in your future, that Jesus did not know about before he went to his cross. Because the Bible tells us that he foreknew you. He foreknew you before time. He knew you in, in the fullness of your depravity, in the fullness of your sin, in every decision you would make, and yet he still chose to love you anyway and to save you from your sin. And so whenever he bleeds out on the cross and he bleeds out nothing but love, know this, that he, was, he is not surprised now whenever you finally allow the light of his grace to shine upon your heart and to reveal those things that were once hidden. You see, to, to those under condemnation, Jesus' words in Luke 12 that I read earlier, that what is covered now is going to be uncovered, right? What is whispered is going to be heard. For those under condemnation who have not received the work of Jesus Christ, those are terrifying words. If that is you, those are warning words. Those are scary words. But consider this. For those who are not under condemnation but are under grace, those who are not under the wrath of God, but instead recipients of his love. For us, for God to uncover what we had tried to cover and to address what we had whispered, you know, and to reveal what we had hidden, for us, even that is a grace. For us, even that is an expression of God's love as he is he's uncovering those things so that through his spirit, he might address them. He might heal the brokenness that drives them. He might slay the idols that are operating in our heart, and so on. Jesus saw the depths of our heart, and he loves us the same. Friend, because of what Jesus has done, you don't have to expect the... You don't have to expect your end being like that of Malachites. But instead, you can expect the gift of forgiveness of sin. If you have not experienced that gift yet... If, you, if your heart is still being hidden, if it is still being covered, if you are, if you are holding on to that darkness, let me, let me call you, let me encourage you, let me plead with you that you would go before the throne of grace, that you would go before Christ's cross, lay down your sin, uncover your heart before him, let his blood wash away your blemishes, let it wash away your sin, let the light of his grace and his resurrection shine down upon that, uh, that what was once a heart of darkness and bring about new life within you so that you might receive the forgiveness of sin rather than the tip of the spear, so that you might receive eternity in heaven at God's table and in the celebration of of the feast of the Lamb, rather than eternity away from Him. And friends, maybe you've experienced that, but you've been somewhat hiding away from God. Maybe you've been living in your own pride. And maybe you've been falling into some of that, really looking down 
acting like that Pharisee on those who are, who are around you who maybe don't have it all together like you do. Maybe you've been hiding some things. There's so many different examples that we can look at in the story that might reflect on our own life. If that's you, the answer is the same. Open your heart to him. Remember that what Jesus said in Luke 12 to us is grace, not condemnation, to have our sins uncovered before the gaze of our loving Father. So do that today. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would expose our hearts, Father. Show us the sins, show us the idols, and show us the brokenness that has been operating in the darkness and needs to be brought into the light so that it might be dealt with, so that idols might be slain, so that sin might be repented of, so that brokenness might be healed. Lord, as long as we hold on to these things and, and try to hide them away from you, they, they fester, they grow, and they, they, uh, they bring more and more decay and disease. So instead, Father, let us experience the light of your grace. And Lord, if there's anyone in, in here who has not experienced their sins being forgiven and being brought into a new relationship with you, knowing what it is like to lay down their life at Jesus' cross and to receive a new one, and then I pray that your spirit would work in their heart to bring about that new life that experience of their sins being forgiven and then walking in the power of your resurrection. Lord, we pray these things so that we might be uh, faithful, obedient, righteous citizens in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.